1: I signed a law uh, making it illegal for somebody to enter Texas from another country, uh, and so and and they're subject to arrest uh, and subject to deportation. If Greg Abbott is allowed to do what he's doing in terms of enforcing his own version of immigration law, it doesn't stop there.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. And I am Dahlia Lithwick. That's my beat at the magazine. And this week, the High Court heard arguments in Loper Bright. That's the deregulatory bombshell case we previewed on last week's show with Professor Ben Johnson. In the intervening time, the New York Times dropped some new reporting about how the quote unquote public interest law firm, Cause of Action, the firm that discloses no donors and reports having no employees that brought Loper Bright is, of course, a front group for Coke Industries. Coke Industries being the champion for deregulation that sometimes includes Clarence Thomas himself at their secret conferences. Uh, bought and paid for every single time. Eugene Carroll's second civil defamation suit against former President Donald Trump kicked off in New York this week as the former president continued to defame her on Truth Social, even somehow from inside the courtroom. Every single thing we have debated on prior shows about Trump, how do we hold him in check when he is repurposing your courtroom for circus and spectacle, is still being worked out by judges in real time, but Judge Lewis Kaplan, overseeing Carol 1, seems to be living every single day at the outer limits of his judicial patience uh, respect. This week, our eyes are on Texas, where a standoff between Federal Border Patrol and the Texas Military Department is creeping toward crisis as the federal courts lend a hand and the Supreme Court takes its time mulling whether or how to intervene. Three separate lawsuits surround Texas Governor Greg Abbott's efforts to wrest control of federal immigration and put it into state hands. As state officials took control of portions of the border, they've refused entry to all federal law enforcement and active duty service members. Last weekend, a woman and her two young children died trying to cross the Rio Grande. In the following days, an ugly fight has played out over whether they were past saving as federal agents tried and failed to get access to the park. Last Friday, the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to intervene again, telling the justices that Texas cannot control Border Patrol's access to the river or dictate their duties. Greg Abbott, never one to miss an opportunity to escalate any conflict, said in a radio interview earlier this month,
1: The only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charges us with
0: murder. Words and actions met with the general reaction that this is just somehow Texas being Texas rather than something that bears all the hallmarks of a constitutional crisis. Later on in the show, Mark Joseph Stern will join our Slate Plus members in a conversation about oral arguments this past week in that Chevron case, Loper Bright, and to give us his take on the litigation around the Texas border stalling out at the high court as the situation on the ground continues to escalate. My conversation with Mark is available exclusively to our Slate Plus members. If you would like to join their ranks and access ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts, enjoy unlimited reading at Slate.com and listen to bonus segments here on Amicus, but also across Slate's network of shows, including Political Gab Fest and Slow Burn, please go to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus to sign up. That slate.com slash amicus plus and to our slate plus listeners thank you thank you for your support we could not do the journalism we're doing on the show and at the magazine without you and as we head into a year that i'm not certain is possible to adequately brace yourself for well we need that support more than ever so thank you okay now on to the main show Elizabeth Prelogger, the U.S. Solicitor General, has filed one emergency update after another, warning the U.S. Supreme Court that the current situation on the Texas border cannot stand. Last week, she filed a second supplemental memorandum to alert the court that, quote, Texas is firm in its continued efforts to exercise complete control of the border and land adjacent to it on this two-and-a-half-mile stretch of the Rio Grande and to block Border Patrol's access to the border even in emergency circumstances, end quote. And so we wanted to turn to someone with deep knowledge and understanding of the borderlands to help us think through what that looks like, feels like, what the very real costs are when a state like Texas decides to just go all in on rejecting federal authority along an international border. This is the kind of situation that can go from stunty To a crisis in a nanosecond and arguably the fact that the high court is sitting on a case that asks why state law enforcement officers control two and a half miles of the southern border now suggests that line has already been crossed. Joining us to discuss SB4, Greg Abbott, immigration, the rule of law, and Texas is Rochelle Garza. She's an attorney from the Rio Grande Valley, currently serving as president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, one of the most influential legal organizations dedicated to empowering Texas communities and creating policy changes in that state. Rochelle Garza was the Democratic nominee for Texas Attorney General, This past spring, she was sworn in as the youngest chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Rochelle gained national prominence for her role in Garza v. Hargan, in which she was guardian ad litem for Jane Doe, a pregnant 17-year-old, denied the right to choose to terminate her pregnancy by the Trump administration. Her work on that case has resulted in the Garza Notice, a federal requirement that ensures teens in immigration detention control their reproductive health care choices. Rochelle, I've been wanting to have you on the show forever, and this felt like the perfect week for it. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so
1: much for inviting me. For clarity, I I think you listed all of the hats that I wear, but I'm here in my capacity as the president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, and we'll be speaking with
0: that hat on. Excellent. Thank you for the clarification. Um, Listen, I have to tell you, and after I read that introduction, I realized it's just hard to know where to start this conversation, but maybe the best thing is to start— Possibly arbitrarily at SB 4 on December 18th of 2023, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a measure that makes it a crime under Texas state law for non-citizens to enter or re-enter the United States without authorization. It allows... Texas state law enforcement authorities to stop, arrest, and jail those suspected of having committed that offense. It empowers state judges to issue deportation orders, de facto deportation orders, against folks convicted of violating this new law. Can you just walk us through whether this just is, you know, a a sort of shabby stunt or whether this is a kind of sea change in the way he is attempting to do immigration law in Texas?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that SB4 threatens to destroy the very foundation of our nation's immigration system. We are required as a country, the United States is required to speak with one voice, one set of laws, and SB4 is challenging that very aggressively. And Governor Abbott is implementing these unconstitutional, hostile takeovers of immigration law in the form of SB4. So SB4 creates two, essentially two new criminal laws, illegal entry and illegal re-entry into the state of Texas. These are mirroring what we have on the federal level, but now there is a state scheme around this. And untrained officers across the state are expected to enforce this law, and magistrates and judges across the state are expected to enforce the law as well. And just to kind of situate things, Texas is a very, very big state. We are also 40% Latino. So there are many threats this law has, not just on immigrant communities, but Latino communities, because it stokes anti-immigrant, anti-Latino sentiment. But there is no limitation on where it would be implemented. I mean, this can be implemented in in West Texas in El Paso. It could be implemented in the Panhandle in Amarillo. It can be implemented in South Texas, where I live, in Brownsville. So there is no uniform way that we're going to see this law implemented. Nonetheless, Greg Abbott has put this forward. I'm very proud of what we have done as an organization, Texas Civil Rights Project, along with ACLU and ACLU of Texas, have sued to to challenge SB4. It is set to go into effect in early March. We filed a preliminary injunction very recently on the 12th of January. And so we're challenging this in court and trying to stop the implementation of this law.
0: Look, we've been fighting about immigrants and immigration policy and about the alleged nexus between, you know, crime waves and immigrants uh, about whether the president or Congress (laughs) sets immigration policy. I mean, we've been having this fight and also kicking this can down the road every election of recent memory and it feels as though, and I know you agree with me, that that Abbott's take on this is sort of particularly cruel and particularly opportunistic and showboaty. But there is this underlying immigration problem. And I wonder if you can just situate from where you are sitting on the ground why we're doing this Groundhog Day iteration again of claims, largely false claims, about immigration in an election year, what does it signal to you about where our heads are on this question nationally?
1: I mean, I can speak to my experience. You know, I I grew up in a border community, grew up in Brownsville, Texas. My family's, you know, fifth generation Texan. I have a personal experience of what it's like to live on the border in border communities and seeing how it plays out on the state level and then seeing how it plays out on the national level. And the border immigration, immigrants are always being used as a wedge issue, as a talking point, something for divisive politics. And Greg Abbott is very intentionally using this during an election year to position himself. I don't know for what exactly? I mean, he may be positioning himself for a future run. He may be positioning himself to be the pick for vice president. Regardless, this is just about politics for Greg Abbott. It is not about really addressing the needs of Texans. Greg Abbott has put in close to $10 billion in border enforcement in the state of Texas through Operation Lone Star, not through SB4, through a bunch of different legal means and these power grabs that he's engaging in instead of investing in the communities in the state, instead of investing in Medicaid expansion or making sure that colonias and communities across the the borderlands have running water.
0: So you mentioned in response to, I think, my first question, Rochelle, that you all are involved in a lawsuit. There's a whole bunch of different lawsuits challenging different parts of Lone Star, challenging SB4. And I wonder if you can just kind of walk us through what the challenge is and what sort of because I think if if you and I are agreeing that this feels like almost a textbook constitutional crisis, right? This feels like a standoff between state and federal authority. Can you walk us through why it is that this is unbelievably consequential, even though it's not getting the attention it deserves and what the sort of predicate is for the legal challenge?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing here is an unprecedented exercise of state control over what is clearly within the federal purview, with, within federal control, which is immigration law. There are essentially three cases here. There's SB4, which uh, we are part of the challenge against with the criminalization of immigrants through these state schemes of illegal entry and re-entry. There's also a case around the concertina wire that the state of Texas and our military force put along the border. And there is also litigation around the buoys that were originally placed inside the river, in the middle of the river with razor wire. And the buoy case is still pending at the Fifth Circuit. But what all of these cases come down to is what is within the federal government's power versus what is in the state government's power. The Supreme Court was very clear back in 2012 with Arizona BUS that The federal government has exclusive control over immigration laws. They are the sole enforcer of federal immigration laws. And there are a plethora of reasons for that, because the United States should be the only one to have control over its borders, its national borders, but also its relationship with foreign nations, And so the threat here is if you allow Texas to create its own immigration system, to pick fights with Mexico or any other Latin American country, it drags the entire United States into this problem. We cannot have 50 different states with 50 different immigration laws or enforcement laws. It undercuts the basic structure of our country of federalism, of our constitution. And I think it's incredibly dangerous what we're seeing happen.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from some of our great sponsors. And now we're back with Rochelle Garza talking about Greg Abbott and SB4 in Texas. You noted, but we should just re-center for listeners, um, it's almost... Certainly the case that SB 4 is preempted by the 2012 Supreme Court decision, Arizona v. U.S., and that was the show-me-your-papers law in Arizona that made it a crime for undocumented immigrants to work or apply for work in that state. I guess that Governor Abbott's theory is— he can go ahead and do SB4 because there's three new Trump justices on the court, uh, no Justice Kennedy at the center. And so why not just take a run on that? Um, as you've suggested, the notion that we we would have the 18 different border states somehow setting their own Immigration policy is unworkable. But it does feel like it's of a piece with this larger theme, and it's kind of Texas hand in glove with the Fifth Circuit that says why not just go ahead and nullify federal law or just ignore constitutional holdings by the court because there's no cost to losing, right? I mean, we're just in the status quo and like, why not just go ahead and operate as though everything is up for grabs? But you started to talk about, and I would love to hear you really pull on this, what it actually does to actual law enforcement officers, both on the state side, the local side, and the federal side, to be in a situation where we're just going to kind of spin the wheel and hope we win at the court and create this massive, massive uncertainty? Can you give us a sense of what it is like to try to do border enforcement when you don't know who actually has constitutional authority to do it in this moment? Yeah, I mean... Texas,
1: as I mentioned earlier, Texas is huge. We have 254 counties and that means, you know, different law enforcement agencies like city police, county police, state police. And how is everybody supposed to know what they're supposed to do when it comes to federal law enforcement in the immigration space. We've got elected judges across the state. How are they going to know what they need to do in order to enforce the law when it comes to SB4? I think it's just very challenging when you have state interference in federal enforcement, especially along the border. I mean, you know, getting back to what happened at Shelby Park, these Border Patrol agents were notified of an issue and they could not do their job. If they cannot enter a park that is actually owned by the city of Eagle Pass and the city of Eagle Pass does not want the state of Texas to do what it's doing, but the state of Texas through the military have, Texas military have taken control over that park. And so they are denying. The federal government the ability to do their job, not just from entering that park and providing emergency assistance, but all these other efforts that we've seen Greg Abbott implement, like you know, the buoys and the concertina wire and Operation Lone Star, that is essentially a state version of what the Trump administration did with family separation and amped up enforcement efforts. I mean, these are all pieces of the larger puzzle to challenge the federal authority to enforce immigration law, including asylum law. And Greg Abbott has unfettered control to do that. And he he believes the courts are on his side and that he's going to get his way on
0: this. Rochelle, can I ask if Operation Lone Star, I, I guess we haven't seen as before, go into effect yet? But can I ask if all of this added border enforcement has made any difference whatsoever in terms of the numbers of people who are seeking to cross?
1: I mean, no, it has not. It has not changed the number of people coming into the United States or seeking asylum. The vast majority of people that are that are coming here are families from Central America. They're fleeing violence, political unrest, sometimes the environmental impacts of climate change because of hurricanes that have hit Central America. There are many reasons why people are coming. And efforts like this is cruelty. It's not actual deterrence. It's not really stopping people from coming. It's just making them suffer. So people are still coming. And they will continue to come because these kinds of efforts are just not, they're not effective.
0: So another piece of this is... That Governor Abbott has been famously busing uh, over 80,000 immigrants to – Democratic-led cities since last year to Washington, D.C., New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, Denver, and Los Angeles, claiming that since they are, quote-unquote, sanctuary cities, they should have to deal with the immigration crisis. He famously dropped families off outside Vice President Kamala Harris's residence on Christmas Eve last year. This is another one of those sort of situations I put in the sort of center of the Venn diagram between looks like a stunt is actually a crisis. Um, In August, a three-year-old girl from Venezuela died of pneumonia. Uh, After she was allowed to board a bus in Texas bound for Chicago. Um, We're hearing about crowding at shelters in Chicago, outbreaks of chickenpox, respiratory infections, uh, of people who land up in Chicago, Rochelle, in flip flops in the middle of winter. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what it is that Governor Abbott is doing and the ways in which it has had an effect where you're getting mayors in these cities now coming online and saying this is President Biden's fault or that there is this immigration crisis because now it's landed at their doorstep.
1: Governor Abbott is shaping the narrative. I mean, he says it himself. I want liberal cities. I want more uh, democratically run communities to see what we're experiencing. And so he's paying about $1,400 per person to bus them to these communities. And it is having an impact. I mean, obviously it's it's all for political gain for him, but the impact is and just to bring it back to Texas, the impact is is that we're not investing in the state. It's a cruel act to just bus someone to another community without any support, without any uh, communication about where they're going, and then using state resources that should be put into Medicaid expansion. I mean, the state of Texas is is probably one of the most dangerous states to have a child uh, to give birth. And instead of investing in, in health infrastructure or any of the number of things that we actually need, this is what he's doing. And it is shaping the narrative uh, in terms of, of these more liberal-leaning cities and how they um, respond to having these people just left at their doorstep. It's
0: an ugly tactic. So I think my, my sort of last question on what does a constitutional crisis look like— Um, Is rooted in some of the reporting I've seen this week, uh, as I think we both agreed, it's awfully muted, the reporting around what's happening in Texas, because there's so much spectacle to behold in other places. But our friend Steve Vladek describes The burgeoning conflict between federal and state officials uh, in and around Eagle Pass as, quote, perhaps the most aggressive such contretemps since federal troops were sent to enforce desegregation decrees in recalcitrant states in the 50s and 60s. Aaron Reitlin-Melnick, who's the policy director of the American Immigration Council, used similar language invoking desegregation. We have such clear images in our minds of, of what that looked like in the 50s and 60s. Can you help our listeners understand in some sense, this is the same thing, but we don't have pictures of it. We don't know what it looks like. Can you give us some kind of lasting image of what it looks like when federal and state officials in and around (laughs) the river can't figure out or are both asserting constitutional authority over what is in fact a crisis?
1: Yeah. I mean, Eagle Pass is a small community and this park is right on the river and it has a boat ramp so just so folks can envision this there's a boat ramp into that river that federal agents have used to patrol the river to make sure to catch you know if anyone's drowning or in distress or to stop anything illegal from crossing to to either side of the border and they work hand in hand with Mexican authorities that are also looking at the river and, and making sure that they're patrolling as well. Most of those folks are, are community members. They, they live in Eagle Pass. They're from Eagle Pass. You know, working in border patrol for many people along the borderlands is a pathway to the middle class. It's a, a good paying job with, with benefits and all of that. And to not have the ability to go into a park that the city controls and to be met with the state enforcement, it, it's, it it creates like a community issue i mean the community itself is at arms you know the city council is really against what the state of texas is doing and and what what resources does a city have in order to fight the state very little and then you've got the federal government here that should be doing more the doj has filed suit around this and but the federal government should be doing more it plays out in very like real ways on the ground where, you know, you have people that are trying to do their job, but just can't do it. And it's usually a community member being faced with, with somebody from most of these these agents um, that work for the Texas Military Force are from outside of the community. So, so it's, you know, it's a difficult situation.
0: I feel like in some sense, you are describing, again, the sort of Uh, faceless military entities in some sense or quasi-military entities that are facing off against one another and the community sort of buckling under this, you know, what what has become really a dangerous standoff and there is a community that doesn't want any of this.
1: Mm Absolutely. And I think one thing for folks to understand is that border communities, um, you know, the city of Eagle Pass, I'll, I'll use Brownsville as an example, we don't see ourselves as completely separate from the sister city across that river. I mean, we are economically, socially, culturally tied to that other side. And so, when something happens in a community like Eagle Pass or Brownsville, it has reverberations across that river. And these cities are also stuck at the intersection of state law and federal law and international law, right? Because we, we share an international boundary. We both get water from that river. So it's a harder position to be in without any real support coming from any of these entities, coming from the federal government or the state government, they use this as a battleground. And so that's why it's important to push back as much as we can, whether it's through litigation, like what we're doing with SB4, through participating at the legislature, which the Texas Civil Rights Project does pretty frequently, is is bringing community members from the border region to come testify against bills that are going to directly impact them. All these things are important and really trying to bring forward the community voices.
0: I want to talk for one minute, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk for a minute, you know, because I mentioned up top the inciting language, the inciting language of Greg Abbott, who certainly implied, although he backed off from it, that but for the Biden administration, we'd just be shooting at people now, that that's the way to solve this. Former President Donald Trump... They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. You know, language poisoning. that has echoes in Adolf Hitler's uh, manifesto Mein Kampf. Trump says he didn't mean it that way. You know, Abbott says he didn't mean it that way. But it does feel like there is a way in which this is deliberate inciting language. It is the language of, and so everybody pick up a gun and do what you need to do because the scourge of unlawful immigrants is poisoning the country. And I just want to give you An opportunity, you know, we talk about it so much on this show, Rochelle, the line between, you know, strong political language and protected free speech and what looks like an invitation for people to take the law into their own hands. And I just want to give you a second to reflect on what that how that language lands when you are sitting on the border in Texas.
1: I'd be lying if I didn't say that it is scary to hear You know, some of these politicians use that kind of language. It is inciting people. We have seen uh, vigilantes come to the border region and try to enforce immigration law on their own terms, which is just a terrifying experience to see. I used to ride my bike along the levee on the river with friends, and now I don't do that anymore because it's too dangerous. I think that the targeting of People that look like me, other Latinos in the state of Texas, is very real. I mean, we've we've heard numerous stories of people being stopped and harmed by agents or because they were perceived to be undocumented or or perceived to have crossed the river illegally or something. And rhetoric like this has very real consequences. And, you know, I deeply believe in this country, in our institutions. I wouldn't be a lawyer otherwise, <laughs> uh, but I I know we're better than this. I know this isn't who we are. This isn't who the state of Texas is. These these aren't our values. We uh, should treat you know immigrants, Latinos, everyone as a human being. Everybody is deserving of that. But you know we've got politicians that will will stoke fear, and we've got to do everything we can to stop them. One thing I did want to share is. Given what has happened to the courts and how they have changed during the Trump administration, it is a real question of do we try to challenge these kinds of laws? Do we challenge what Governor Abbott is doing? Because we know what he's doing. He's baiting. He's trying to overturn Supreme Court precedent in Arizona B.U.S. and trying to bring more power to his position and to the state to enforce federal law. and. It is difficult to think that through about what what do we do? Do we challenge and, and po- possibly lose? But th- the reality is that we can't stand for that. We can't stand for it as a country. We can't stand for it as advocates, as people that know what's right and believe in our system of government, believe in federalism, believe in our constitution. And our systems are only as strong as we allow them to be, right? Or, or, or encourage them to be. And this litigation is about that. It's about making sure that we continue to put ourselves on the path towards democracy and towards treating people as
0: human beings. Rochelle, I need to give you a chance now to reach out to the crazy uncles everywhere who, you know, have (laughs) to live with the reality that immigration policy is you know, anxiety producing, and we just keep kicking it down the road and not resolving it. And it, you know, as a consequence, you know, you're seeing polling that suggests that this makes Americans incredibly anxious. You know the data better than I do. In 2016, the courts that adjudicate whether or not migrants will qualify for asylum had a backlog of Mm -hmm. just over 163 Thousand cases, that total grew to almost six hundred fifteen thousand cases in twenty twenty, and over a million uh, such cases just last year. Asylum seekers are waiting four years just to get a hearing. Um, We just don't have uh, the resources to process, to manage the asylum flow. And so nothing happens. And Congress turns it into a punching bag. So here we have Texas that wants to, as you said, and I agree, perform taking charge of the situation. This is a congressional failure. This is a political failure. What is it that we can do starting tomorrow, if there was political will to fix this.
1: I mean, we absolutely need more resources within the immigration system. As you laid out, we don't have enough immigration judges. We don't have enough asylum officers to do an initial screening for credible fear, for even affirmative applications that are submitted But I will say, I mean, this, this problem isn't just within our system. I mean, we need to have comprehensive immigration reform and thoughtful reform, but we also need to think as a country, how we support other countries' stability. Because as I mentioned, a lot of the folks that are coming are coming because of uh, instability in their home countries. I practiced immigration law before I got into more civil rights, reproductive rights space. And I worked with hundreds of children that were fleeing violence from Central America that found themselves in detention here in South Texas. And a lot of them were fleeing some very, very serious, dire situations, political unrest and all the like. And One, we have to treat immigrants humanely, and two, we have to address the heart of these issues and and its instability in other countries, and we need to enforce our laws. We need to have our asylum system be adequately supported, making sure that we treat people humanely and get them through this process as quickly as
0: possible. We will be back with Rochelle Garza after a quick break. Back now with Rochelle Garza talking about constitutional crisis in Texas. I'm loath to bring this up, Rochelle, but it feels like another part of the kind of multi-headed hydra that we're calling a constitutional crisis is this utterly insane push led by Marjorie Taylor Greene to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Under the theory that he's not doing his job. And I just want to note, for the first time this week, the White House condemned that effort using the word unconstitutional. So there's that word again, right? That we don't impeach people based on policy differences. But again, it seems as though if we take seriously what the White House is saying, and as you said uh, earlier, what the Justice Department is saying about these efforts, they do raise constitutional questions about how it is that we go forward with an infrastructure, a constitutional infrastructure that is under constant assault. And so I put this again in the class of this is a stunt. It's meaningless, but it's actually kind of not meaningless to try to go after. somebody because you don't like the way he's doing immigration enforcement it feels like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm back in this loop of, is this real? Is this serious? Or is this something we should pay no attention to? Because it's Marjorie Taylor Greene being Marjorie Taylor Greene. It seems more than that to me. It seems dire. And yet I think we have this reflex to say, you know, politics is just a series of cynical stunts now. I
1: think we've entered some pretty dangerous territory, actually. We have different entities trying to grab power. That's what's happening with the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. it's a power grab. Uh, what we saw happen with the oral arguments that we heard on challenging Chevron deference. I mean, that's also a power grab for the judiciary. What Greg Abbott is doing in Texas is a power grab for, you know, for states' rights. I mean, I, I think we're in some really interesting times everything is pretty fragile right now. I mean, when I went to law school, we talked about checks and balances. You know, you have administrative law and you have constitutional law and you have state law. And and now we just have people in power and and, in these positions of influence and power that don't care about the rule of law. They don't care about the constitution and our systems that make this a functioning democracy. So we are in some pretty dangerous times when we look at all these different pieces that are happening all at the same time with a judiciary that might actually allow a lot of these things to to move forward.
0: I think what you're saying is that these things that look like stunts or they just look cynical are in fact, masking structural power grabs. Yes. And that particularly when you're in this lane of the law and the rule of law... We get, you know, very, very excited about sort of the facts of the case. But if underlying it, and that is, in fact, the Chevron case, right, that's a structural power grab that gets kind of bogged down in, you know, guys on fishing boats. But I think what you're saying is take it literally and seriously because undergirding it is the opportunity for courts, you know, in this case, the Fifth Circuit, the Supreme Court, To make kind of dispositive shifts in who's in charge, and I, I actually think that's kind of exactly the frame we're looking for. It's very hard to take Greg Abbott seriously. And yet this is deathly, deathly serious. I I do want to turn, if if I could, you were, I I mentioned this up top, you were the guardian ad litem in that landmark abortion case that challenged the Trump administration's refusal to allow a migrant teen uh, to terminate her pregnancy, even though a state court had already permitted it. You were in a chapter of my book about it. I would love for you to talk about the nexus between SB4, which, as you said, is about to go into effect this spring unless it's stopped, um, and SB8, the Texas abortion regime that was similarly about conscripting law enforcement, rewarding vigilantism, kind of confusion about who, if anyone, is in charge – all of it feels like these are efforts to use Texas laws to nullify federal constitutional protections, to nullify checks and balances. It feels, again, very Texas. To me, it also feels like it's so much bigger than that. And I would love for you to just talk about this is an not a new thing. This is a thing that we see versions and versions and versions of it, which is always going to redound to the harm of the most vulnerable communities.
1: Absolutely. And that was very well said. I think what has been happening is people in power that are trying to decide who gets to be treated as a human being, who gets civil rights, And what happened in the Jane Doe case with the immigrant teen, I still think a lot about Jane and what she went through on a personal level, but I also think about what that case really symbolized for the Trump administration and for this broader thing that we are really talking about, the erosion of very important civil rights for not just immigrant communities, but for, for women to have basic bodily autonomy. It was the perfect case for the Trump administration to challenge those two issues, to take away reproductive rights. And they thought they were going to get away with it because they were doing it to somebody who was incredibly vulnerable and they didn't believe that anyone would believe she mattered. And they thought that they were going to strip any constitutional protections from immigrants. The number one question I got when, when I was uh, the attorney on that case from Spanish media was, do immigrants have constitutional rights? Do they have protections? So it's all interconnected, right? With what we're seeing happen with SB4, with this immigration scheme in Texas, with what we saw happen with SB8 on the vigilante law. All of this is interconnected in that it is about challenging the basic tenets of our legal system and federalism and our constitution. It's about chipping away at these things. We can write it off as Greg Abb being ridiculous, but that's just not the impact. Because the impact of this is in the aggregate, we are moving towards a very dangerous place, a very scary place where we can have a law that is (laughs) extrajudicial, that evades judicial review. How is it that SB8 could evade judicial review? And for, for folks that, that don't, the, the scheme is one where it's an individual that sues another individual, so it's not necessarily a state enforcement of that law. And so that evades judicial review. It can't be that that is the case. It can't be that we have laws, uh, whether it's on the municipal level, state level, federal level, that evade the ability to be evaluated by a judge. At the same time, <laughs> we have to make sure that the judges actually believe in, in separation of powers. You know, these are all pieces of the
0: same problem. So the last thing I I think I need to ask uh, takes us back to SB4, because already similar bills are percolating and pending in other state legislatures, including, surprise, surprise, Florida, Louisiana, North Carolina. And this takes us back to where we started, which is... One thing we keep learning and not internalizing is that things that start in Texas don't end in Texas. So, yes, we're thinking about SB8 and abortion. And I said, you know, this is just Texas being Texas, but it isn't, right? It feels like a brewing national constitutional meltdown around who enforces the law. And I, I think I want you to... Tell me, from where you're sitting in Texas, why it is that when progressives who sit (laughs) in other places dismiss this as, you know, this is just Greg Abbott, this is just Texas, this is just the Fifth Circuit, it's never constrained to that. Why don't we learn that lesson and can you help our listen? I know that's not a fair way to ask you a last question, but can you help <laughs> listeners who think this is just kind of performance art at the Texas border understand that this is a pattern and that it's not? just performance art. It's not just Greg Abbott. It's not just Texas. It's not just immigration. Texas
1: is critical. Texas is the avenue for the erosion of civil rights. I've said this many times. I said it when I was campaigning for attorney general. What happens in Texas never stays in Texas. And where we are situated in a Fifth Circuit that is pretty hostile towards civil rights and protections there's a beeline to the Supreme Court, which now has changed dramatically. So Texas is absolutely critical. It's always been critical. It is one of the largest states in the union. If we could flip Texas and, and, and make it a state that is friendlier to civil rights and constitutional rights, then we can change the course of history in, in this country. Texas is where Roe versus Wade originated. Right. I mean, we, we have been simultaneously the state that has produced some pretty egregious laws that erode civil rights, but we've also been the vehicle for change. So this is why I continue to live here. This is why I continue to work here, why I believe so deeply in the work that we do at the Texas Civil Rights Project is because I know that this state has the potential to make things better. And for your listeners, it's important to understand that you know, you have to take Texas seriously. You have to take take it seriously what the state government is doing, how those actions are going to change federal law. Uh it reverberates beyond immigration law. If Greg Abbott is allowed to do what he's doing in terms of enforcing his own version of immigration law, it doesn't stop there. It will impact other areas. We've got folks that are challenging um, you know, the right to travel in the state. That is a constitutionally protected right to, to travel freely across this country. Yet we have cities in the state of Texas that are passing ordinances to prevent people from traveling through the city to get an abortion in another state. This is going to be the vehicle. Texas is always going to be the vehicle for the erosion of civil rights, but also the protection of civil rights.
0: Rochelle Garza is an attorney from the Rio Grande Valley, and she is now serving as president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, one of the most influential legal organizations dedicated to empowering Texas communities and creating policy changes in the state. Rochelle, I cannot Thank you enough. And it's simultaneously like what you just said about Texas, just reassuring and horrifying uh, to watch what it is that you have to contend with. So thank you so much, both for your work and for joining us. I think this is a problem we have to take much more seriously. And I deeply, deeply appreciate you reminding us how serious it is. Thanks. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Amicus thank you so much for listening in and thank you for your letters and questions and comments you can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com we love your letters and you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast Sara Burningham is Amicus's senior producer our producer is Patrick Fort Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next weekend. Until then, hang on in there. This is the story of The
1: One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.